We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And for the next few minutes, I just want to take you on an imaginative journey back to the city of Milan in the year 387. So you can imagine that you're living in Milan. At this point, uh, they would sing songs that Milan is the greatest city in the world. It's the greatest city in the world. It's the new home of the new emperor. And it's a city of energy and city of wealth. But the date is April 25th, 387. And this is, you're about to enter into what is the holiest moment on the holiest day of the holiest week of the year. So I want you to imagine that you've been preparing for the last uh, 46 days to be baptized in the church in Milan. So it's just before dawn, and you stand with 25 other catechumens or other hearers, and you stand apprehensive, you stand a little anxious, you also are really itchy because you're wearing this raw, coarse, black goatskin tunic that you have had to wear for the entire week. You haven't been able to take it off because you can't. You physically can't get it off. It has to be removed for you. And you've been told that this represents your old sinful nature that's about to die in the waters of baptism. But it is heavy, it's itchy, it's smelly, and you cannot wait to get it off. But your friend, Adeodatus, is there, and in just a moment, he will help take it off soon. You'll pass through the waters of death and judgment, and then you'll be robed in this brilliant white linen garment, but not yet. So you, 25 others, their sponsors, deacons from the church, and your pastor, Ambrose, you have been up all night, engaged in prayer and fasting, and as you stand ready for this moment, you begin to doze a little bit. It's hard to stay focused. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, your senses are heightened and you're snapped back into the present moment because Ambrose has taken this big glob of oil and it kind of smells like cooking oil. It's some type of oil and he's rubbing it all over your head and he's smashing it into your eyes and he's got his finger in your ear and he's rubbing the oil in your ear and he's holding up and saying the apatha, apatha over you. And you've been taught this represents the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And now you've been given spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears so you can hear. But it still feels kind of funny. Now, Ambrose is about to begin the great initiation ceremony. And once again, your mind begins to wonder. You think, how did I get here? How did I get here in this moment? You think about that long road that brought you to stand before Ambrose, Ambrose the Great, the one who had defied Emperor Valentinian himself and still lived. The Ambrose who just last year had stood on this very day, on this Easter morning when Emperor Theodosius' soldiers came to confiscate the basilica, he stood at the front and demanded all the soldiers out. And he still lived. 
You never thought you would be able to get this close to the great man. But for the last 46 days, he's been your constant companion. He had said that training his beloved catechumens was the greatest joy and his highest privilege in life. And you don't believe that. You don't believe that a man who can walk at will in all of the halls of power would find his greatest joy in teaching you and answering all your seemingly simple questions. But he said it, and he certainly appeared to enjoy it. But these last 46 days, they have been intense in their training. You and 25 others would meet with him twice every single day except for Sunday. And you did this for the entire season of Lent. You had to meet at the third hour and the ninth hour, or 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. for those who aren't around from around here. Together you would pray, you would sing psalms, and then he would teach. And he slowly, he walked you through creation. He walked you through the fall and the flood. He walked you through famines. He walked you into Egypt. Then he walked you out of Egypt and up Sinai. Then he walked you down and into the wilderness. And he walked you into the promised land. And then he walked you into Galilee, the Galilean hills, and he brought you to the feet of Jesus. And you heard about his teaching, and he took you to the cross, and he walked you to the empty tomb, and he told you about this one, the one who is the sin conqueror, the death destroyer, the giver of new life. And that's why you're here right now. That's why you're here in that moment, because the next step in your journey is to walk into the new life that he gives. And now Ambrose had also given you this rigorous, uh, rigorous regimen of fasting and books to read with your sponsor. I had mentioned him, Adeodatus. You know, his name means the gift of God, and what a gift of God he had been. You know, it all began with him. I never would have been allowed in if he hadn't brought me, but it started because I saw him. I saw the way he loved his wife, which just seemed so unusual. I saw the way his children loved him, which seemed so unusual. I saw the way he did not panic during the great famine, and I saw the way the great political upheavals of regime change did not fluster him, and he stayed secure. And finally, one day, I just asked, Adeodatus, what is the reason for this hope? You have a hope that I don't have and don't understand. And smiling, he said, come, come and see. I will show you. We will teach you about this hope. So 46 days later, we start her. I began last year as a, a catechumen, a, a, a hearer. Then a year later, I was initiated, brought into, uh, become one of Ambrose. He called us his athletes of the soul. He says, we're going to begin a 46-day regimen of intense training. And just as you see those Olympians training for the games, we're training intense athletes for the soul. And what does it profit if a man wins the wreath of glory in the games but forfeits his soul? So we began our intense training. And Ambrose was intense, but he was also gentle. He kept calling us his lambs. And he seemed so eager to answer every question, of which there were many. And he had encouraged them 
and never seemed annoyed. But here it is now. It's time to begin. Dawn is about to break, and he turns us all like a military company, and he makes us all face to the west. We turn away from the light and we face the darkness. And he says, look, behold, the land of darkness from which you have come. And facing the darkness and in unison, we renounce the devil, his ways, his works. Then he turns us back to the east, the land of the light. And the light is just starting to break over the horizon. And Ambrose reminds us that this is a new day. Today we celebrate the dawning of a new day. And we celebrate the one who is going to make all things new. And at the dawn of this new day, and at the dawn of this new season, and on this day we celebrate the dawn of the new heavens and the new earth. And so as the sun rises into the baptistry of the Basilica Nova, you go. You're separated, men to the right, women to the left, You've always marveled at this baptistry because it looks like a mausoleum. It looks like a tomb. Now, if you're not from Milan, you don't understand the way uh, the Milanese have a love for mausoleums, for tombs. Might seem strange to you, but any wealthy and ambitious man, the way you make your mark, the way you leave your legacy is you build a magnificent, glorious tomb. So you will always be remembered never forgotten. I myself have worked on many of these tombs as a craftsman, and there is no mausoleum as impressive in this city as the one at the Basilica Nova. It's magnificent, none like it. None in all of Milan compares to the workmanship, the detail, the care, but something very strange. It's only open once a year. Other regal lords who have these type of tombs, they open it up to display their opulence and splendor. And you remember when you asked Ambrose, you say, it doesn't make sense. Why do you only open it up once a year? And then after you asked, he got, he got animated. So why? Why? Why do we only open it up once a year? Because that is the holy of holies, you were told. That is the most sacred piece of ground in all of Milan. You were told that here in this tomb, when you enter in and everyone in your faithful family who's entered in, when they enter in, your old self will die in the waters and then you will rise again to new life. And he wanted you to appreciate, you do appreciate the architecture. And he says, ah, how many sides is the mausoleum? Of course, everyone knows it's eight. Ah, now the teacher is on, he's on the scent. Eight, why eight? Ah, when you walk in, notice the pool. It's eight-sided. It's an octagon. Why? So you start to think, you know about Ambrose's love for numbers. He loves to tell you about things that come in threes. And you love to hear, he talks about sevens and creation and 10 as wholeness. But you haven't heard eight heard that number before. So when you don't know things, you make, you try to make light of it and make a joke and you say, well, maybe, uh, it's because God made the world in seven days. We make it eight to say we do one better. He doesn't really find it funny, but he jumps on and says, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. You're on the right track. 
Seven days is the number of the first creation, and it's, it's constructed as an octagon, as the number eight to remind you as you enter in and come out, you're entering into the eighth day, the first day of the new heavens and the new earth, the first day. This is day one of your new creation because behold, he is coming to make all things new, and he begins with you. So every time you see the octagon, you think you're living in day one of new creation, and so you try to think about that as you walk in. But it's hard to hold on to that thought because your first step in the water sends a shockwave of chill up your bones. And you had wondered if they'd put some of the heating stones in the water. And it seems they haven't. So after, so you step into the eight-sided pool, the icy blast of the water sends searing energy all throughout your body. And you start to feel some of the imagery that they say where you've died and come back to life. So it kind of feels like that. Then with the help of Adeodatus and one of the deacons, you enter into the water. You are waist deep. You are trying to pay attention. And then there Ambrose fixes his eyes upon you and you hear him say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? the maker of heaven and earth. And this is not the first time you've heard these words. For over the past 46 days, he has, uh, these words have been entrusted to you. In fact, you couldn't believe the solemnity with which Ambrose held out these words to you and said, these are our sacred trust. These are the most precious possession we have. We do not write them on paper because we etch them on your heart. So you etch these words on your heart. And so he, he begins and he had walked you through all of these words. He had told you your primary task from uh, Palm Sunday to that week was to memorize these words. And there were only a few, so they were easy. He led you in singing them, chanting them, reciting them. All the while he explained them line by line, telling you this is what has always been believed everywhere and by everyone. This is our compendium of all of our great truths. So he walked you through them all, and he asked, do you believe? And then proudly, loudly, you respond, credo, I believe. And then before you could even think, he, he grabs you, and he plunges you under the water. And it is much colder all the way in than before. And he declares as you come out, I baptize you in the name of God, the Father Almighty. And then before you can even catch your breath, he looks at you and says, do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And you respond, credo, I believe. And then before you can catch your breath, you're plunged under Again, And he says, I baptize you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and ripping you back up out of the waters. He says, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? And you declare credo, I believe. And for the third time, you're plunged under the water and he holds you down a little longer this time, you think. And he says, I baptize you in the name of the 
Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, risen with Christ in the resurrection of all things. Arise. And then he sends you up out of the water. The deacon, ah, Deo Dottis, help you. They then anoint you with oil that represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then there your friend is waiting with the perfectly white linen tunic and some warm towels. And now you're clothed in the spotless white representing Christ's perfect righteousness that is now yours, baptized into the thrice holy name of the blessed Trinity. Today is the day in which you declare he's making all things new. Then with the other 25, you process out of the mausoleum. You go around the front of the basilica and you come in the front doors and there your entire spiritual family in mass is there singing the glory of Patri, glory to God the Father. And you process all the way down the aisle in your new white linen and take your place among Christ's household. It's Easter morning in Milan, April 25th, 387. So what are we doing over the next several months? Over the next several months, we're looking at Matthew chapter 16, verse through 20. And here Jesus lays out his blueprint for how he's going to build his church. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn what that blueprint is so we can follow him as we're trying to build uh, this church. And in the first section, the first section is all about the foundation that he's laying. And the foundation that he's laying is built on two rocks of reality, a foundational confession this is what we confess, and then a foundational commitment to follow him. And over the next several weeks, we want to think about that confession. What is the confession that is the foundation? And then uh, how can we build our life and our church upon it? So before you take on any kind of building or <clears throat> home renovation project, there's just a couple of kind of clarifying questions, a couple things you want to get clear on before you start. So for example, if your wife thinks uh, you're renovating the kitchen, but you think you're uh, renovating the garage, you're going to, you, you know, you'll talk past each other. There'll be some confusion. You want to get clear on, all right, what are we building? Who's responsible for what? And then how do we uh, go about doing it? So this morning, what I want to do <coughs> is look at the text and help us just quickly get clear on a couple of things. We want to get clear on, all right, just get clear on what the question is. We want to get clear on whose building project this is and then get clear on, all right, what's the confession? What is that confession and what does that mean? So first, let's read the passage. Starting in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. <coughs> Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. But my father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So a couple things, kind of way of kind of uh, foundation laying. First, you want to get clear on what the question is. Notice the question that Jesus asked them. Who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the essential question. I mean, this is the most important question you can ever be asked. This is the most important question that you can ever answer everywhere the gospel goes. This is the core fundamental question. Who do you say that I am? Now, all throughout your life, you're going to be asked important questions. You'll be asked questions like, what do you want for your birthday? What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to major in? Will you marry me? Will you take this job? Will you leave this job? All of those important questions. And all of them can shape the course or the character of your life. But none of them are as important as this question, who do you say that I am? So this is the question. And it's the question that not every, like everybody has to answer that personally, but also communally. Like who do you in this culture, in this time, in this place, who do we people who live at, at, at this moment, in this place, in this part of the world, who do we say <coughs> that he is? Who do you say that I am? And this confession is the first foundational stone that he's going to build his church on. So that's the most important question. So we have to be clear. Right, the question we're answering is, who do we say that he is? But then I want you to notice another important kind of preliminary is it's really important to get clear on whose building project this is. What building project? Notice what Jesus says. He says, he praises Simon for his confession that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. So when we look at kind of the, the story of history, the construction project that Jesus is building, he's building his church, his house, his kingdom. These things are coming and it's on that rock. He's going to build it. That's the grand project of history. And we, uh, this is a challenge for us because we just kind of assume that the grand project of world history is my own self-actualization or my own self-enrichment, uh, or my own self, you know, my self-enrichment project. And he says, no, this, the, the building project, the building of Christ's kingdom, the building of his church is not a, in essence, it's not a human project. It's something he's doing. And this is going to be challenging because you kind of look at, you know, just the church and it looks like any other human organization. I mean, it's staffed by people, it's managed by people, it's attended by people, and it certainly looks like a human organization, but it's not. It's not like any other organization in the world. It's not like a school, it's not like a business, it's not like the post office, it's not like a deli, it's not like these other things. You know, God in his mercy has given us all these different 
institutions, organizations, some are kind of common grace institutions that everybody experiences for the flourishing of the community, like family, like school, like the arts, like government. These are all meant to be institution business that is done uh, well and ethical. All these things are institutions meant for the flourishing of the world, the kind of common grace institutions. But the church is a unique, special grace institution that has a very unique calling, a unique power, a unique organization. So we minister to, we employ, we engage with people. We, you know, people attend, people volunteer, people are employed by the church, but it's not a human building project. So this is one of the great challenges to remember, right? Whose who's building project are we building? It's he, we are joining him <coughs> as he is building his project. And maybe one helpful analogy as you think about the body of Christ kind of on earth, as you can think about, all right, well, how was Christ's body on earth? He was both God and man at the same time. And sometimes you could look and you could see the man part and it was kind of obvious, but to know the God part could be a little mysterious or confusing, but it's the same way. Sometimes it's easy to see the man part and miss miss the God part. But that's going to be a challenge for us in the modern West. And we're just kind of swimming in the democratic, egalitarian, consumeristic sea that's just going to push us in certain directions. And we have to remember whose church this is, who's doing the building. But then the third thing, kind of the last question to think about this morning, probably the most important question is just, all right, well, what's the confession? What is this confession that it's, it's built on? Get clear about what the confession is. Notice uh, what he says, blessed are you, Simon Peter, on this rock, that rock, Peter's words, his words where he confesses that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, that's the confession. And on that, I'm going to build my church. And this is also hard for us because we don't like you know, specificity. We don't like to be specific in the things we believe or confess, but this is one of the great gifts to us. One of the things the confession will do is it'll give you certain stability and it'll give you comfort. It gives you stability. Because, you know, in your darkest hours, when you least feel like loving the Lord and loving other people, you can build your life on truths that are unchanging and are stable. You know, Elizabeth Elliot, who uh, missionary, lost her husband, Jim. Uh, Jim was 29. I'm not sure how old Elizabeth was, but uh, newly married. Uh, they had gone to South America. Husband uh, was killed, came back, and then she remarried. So she kind of had the, you know, all the uh, challenge of, of losing uh, young love, first husband very early. Came back, eventually uh, married again, had a very long, beautiful, wonderful uh, second marriage, but then also had to walk through, you know, she had to walk through first having her husband taken from her in a surprise moment, but then on the back end of her life had to walk through having her husband slowly taken from her from a long debilitating uh, disease. And she would say as she was having to walk through that, there would just be days where she'd get up and felt like she couldn't breathe, she couldn't talk, she couldn't pray, she couldn't worship, she couldn't read her Bible. And what she would do is she would take the Apostles' Creed and just say it over and over and she'd remind herself, this is true. No matter how I feel right now, this is true. No matter what I'm experiencing right, no matter what this doctor says when we get back, this is true and it will not change. 
See, it gave her stability. It gave her a rock. It gave her a core truths that she could build her life upon. And what's one of the amazing things when you take a 2,000-year picture and you look at a Christ church as it's gone all throughout the globe for 2,000 years, it's amazing the continuity between the confessions of Christ's people. You know, there was a book this past year. It was a series of books that came out in 2003, and it was done by Yaroslav Pelikan, and he's a professor of church history at Yale. Uh, he passed away probably 10 years ago, but he had his, you know, it's amazing kind of what you can do when you have a whole slew of grad students who will work for you. But he collected, uh, they collected over 2,000 confessions, creeds and confessions, all throughout church history starting from the early church all the build all across the globe and it's kind of this may it's not in print now and you have to fork out about a thousand dollars if you want it so i am often tempted but don't worry cynthia i have not uh, succumbed to the temptation to buy it off ebay yet they have the four volumes at the rts library and they won't let you take it out of the library so i just go up there and and read it. But it's amazing when you read through because you're looking at the span of, and one of the amazing things actually is you have, you know, they whittled it down to about 200 confessions. You started with 2,000. And one of the amazing things is how, in so many ways, so many of them just say the same thing over and over. You know, one of, my, uh, one of the scholars who looked at uh, all of the early creeds and confessions that went to, towards the East. So as you think about celebrating the Olympics and looking to China as the, the confessions that went to the east, James Hahn, he reconstructed most of the confessions used in the church by the third century. And listen to this and see if it sounds familiar to you. So we believe in one God, the almighty maker of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, begotten of the father before all ages, through whom all things came to be, who for us, he came down from heaven and he became incarnate. He was born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, was buried and rose on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the father and will come in glory to judge the living and the dead of his kingdom. There will be no end. We believe also in the one Holy Spirit, the giver of life, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, one baptism that represents forgiveness of sins. We believe in the resurrection of the dead, in the kingdom of heaven, and in life everlasting. Amen. And this is obvious, like if you heard like the Nicene Creed, this was a couple hundred years before this is filtered through all, all the ch many, many churches all throughout the East. Or you can look at St. Patrick, who's St. Patrick, who took from, uh, in essence, England, he took who was considered, you know, the wildest, farthest reaches of the North, those Irish, the, the epitome of the wild pagans he takes in his confession that he takes, you can read, and I won't read, <coughs> I won't read all of it, I have it here, but you read so many similarities and parallels. It's something we all know. We all heard. We've all even probably said before. But probably in the whole book, one of my favorites comes from the Maasai people. So the Maasai people are East, a tribe in East Africa. And after the missionaries came and brought the gospel there and then translated the Bible. And after a couple generations, you know, they lived kind of off the Apostles' Creed and says, you know, it's time for us to say when Jesus asked, who do you, who do the Maasai people say that he is? And then listen to this creed. See if we can pull it up. Uh, here's their creed. 
We believe in the one high God of love who created the beautiful world and everything good in it. He created man and wanted man to be happy in the world. God loves the world and every nation and tribe in the world. We have known this God in darkness and we now know God in the light. God promised in his book, the Bible, that he would save the world and all the nations and tribes. We believe that God made good on his promise by sending his son, Jesus Christ, a man by the flesh, a Jew by tribe, born poor in a little village, who left his home and was always on safari, doing good, curing people by the power of God, teaching about God and man, showing that the meaning of religion is love. He was rejected by his people, tortured and nailed hands and feet to a cross and died. He lay buried in the grave, but the hyenas did not touch him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He ascended to the skies and he is Lord. We believe that all our sins are forgiven through him. All who have faith in him must be sorry about their sins, be baptized in the Holy Spirit of God, live by the rules of love and share the bread together to announce the good news to others. Until Jesus comes again, we are waiting for him. He is alive. He lives. This we believe. Amen. Jesus comes and he says, who do you say that I am? And the Messiah people say, this is who we say you are. And isn't that a beautiful statement? You know, I think as we kind of craft our statement of faith, maybe instead of take, we could take the Messiah people's and maybe tweak a word or two. I don't know if we still think about going on safari, but that is a beautiful statement about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And he says, this is the rock that through all ages and all generations, I am going to build my church upon. And there's such beautiful continuity there, stability. So the confession is what he builds upon. And not only does he build on the confession, he also builds on communion. So each week we come to the table because it's those who like the Messiah people who say, we believe. We believe that in him all our sins are, are forgiven. We believe that those who have faith in him must be sorry about their sins and they're baptized in the spirit of God. And then they can come and they share together the bread at his table. So we invite all those who were baptized, who live life built on that confession to come. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. And he says, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. Take in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He says, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you for the way that you are building your church. We praise you for the way you're building it all throughout time and all throughout uh, history and all throughout the geography, all throughout the world. But we thank you that there's continuity and it's built on the tremendous truth of who you are and what you came to do. And we ask that you help us to know these truths. We ask that you help us to love these truths. And we ask that you help us to live them out in our life. We praise you that you've given us a rock that we can build upon. And when the rain comes and the wind blows and the storms come, we can stand. So we ask that you help us, all of us, to stand in those days. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.